Trey, appreciate you coming on here, man. Excited to chat with you. Uh, we were actually just joking offline here about uh, exactly how we got connected, right? I got a team, you got a team, and you're doing some big stuff. And I like your your show. We study billionaires. Did I say that correctly? That's correct. There we go. Well, I call myself Billionaire Bosetti. Probably a little bit of the ego there, but I think that we can all be billionaires. One of the main focuses of this podcast is to have fun, entertain, inform people. But I think everything starts with like a victim mentality, right? Helping people get out of their own way, get out of their own head. I believe most people are are peasants. It's one of my favorite words to use. Love or mm-hmm. hate it, I don't know. But I think a lot of us are are peasants. We're victims to our own minds. We're victims to our own circumstance. And hence the name of your podcast. We study billionaires. Most of those people are not victims, right? Regardless of their background. So, dude, I want you to kind of start there and just share with the audience here uh, a little bit about you and what your show really entails because uh, I'm excited to dive into that topic. Well, first of all, Tyler, thanks for having me. And uh, I totally agree with what you said about Billionaire Bossetti. I, um, I think the billionaires I interview would actually agree with this, but I'm a big believer in all of us being billionaires of our own time, you know, uh, being billionaires of time. I think, you know, there's, um, as long as you have kind of control over your time, you, you should have freedom and, and the money is very relative after that. So anyways, yeah, I'm happy to go wherever you want with the podcast and, 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 uh, and billionaires, but that kind of stood out to me off the bat. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll talk about a whole bunch of stuff here, whatever you want to talk about as well. So uh, let's start there, though, with time. I think that's, you know, we talk about it being our, our number one asset. And obviously, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. But there are certain things that billionaires are doing or they've done. Sure, maybe they were born into it. But in reality, most, I believe it's like over 70%, if I'm not mistaken, of billionaires or people, you know, born into generational wealth, eventually turns back to poverty, right? They turn back to that peasant victim mentality because there's something that may, something maybe wasn't instilled into them. So outside of time, is there like a specific mentality or mantra that these billionaires have that maybe everyday people don't have? That's a good question. And to your first point there, I I think I've heard this. I I don't know if there's an exact study around it, but I think the general rule of thumb is that after the third generation, you know, generational wealth can be very um, jeopardized because you often find that by the third generation, you are dealing with folks who may have some sense of entitlement at that point, or they have a false sense of reality because of just the wealth they've grown up with. And you, you know, stress and pressure is what makes a diamond they say right so you know you need you need um some stress and pressure to keep evolving you know as a human or really anything in nature and i think that if you grow up without that kind of stress or pressure um it's hard to just manufacture that level of drive that's needed to achieve something like a billionaire status and i would say that the one thing that billionaires have that you know that maybe the rest of us don't or a lot of us don't is the ability to delay gratification. Um, Warren Buffett likes to say that, you know, I remember this quote when Jeff Bezos asked him, why don't, why doesn't everyone invest like he does? And he says, because no one wants to get rich slowly. And um, that's, that's exactly right. Because 
our little human brains really cannot comprehend the idea of compounding, especially over decades. Um, and you know, you might just run across all of these little parables about how Johnny invested this for 10 years, but Bill invested this for Y years. And, you know, Johnny ends up better off because he started 10 years earlier. And these are things that kind of are counterintuitive to our brains because uh, we just can't really, our, our brains are more linear thinking. We don't really con comprehend uh, compounding naturally, at least. So, you know, you've probably heard of the marshmallow. just to stop you there, yeah. real quick, just to add some comments here, because there's, you said a lot of good stuff, like one, stress and pressure. One of my favorite love or hate them, uh, like speeches, I think Donald Trump gave is the, the, the speech where he talks about, like, I know a lot of smart people. Uh, most people around me are like smarter than me. They could be more successful than me, but they just don't know how to handle the pressure. They don't know how to handle the stress. Right. So that's a really, really good takeaway when it comes to like the mentality. But then secondly is what makes an investor an investor? What makes a billionaire a billionaire? What makes a, a good entrepreneur a good entrepreneur? Or really, I believe just an overall good trait and a good person is being able to remove that instant gratification, having that more delayed gratification, utilizing the compound effect, the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. And with social media, I mean, shoot, this show could be a couple hours. And I would almost guarantee you, Trey, most people listening to this show won't even be able to get all the way through it. That's okay. That's why we'll cut up clips and whatnot. But we are so programmed man, to just like keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And there could be some secret sauce that you share in this hour and a half, two hours that can collapse the time for people significantly. So sorry to cut you off. Wanted to, wanted to mention that right out the gate is that is massive uh, feedback that you've recognized in studying these billionaires and, and connecting with them. So apologize. No, I appreciate it. I mean, whether it's uh, starting your own business, um, which I think is the first and foremost uh, best path to wealth personally, or investing in other people's businesses, it takes a lot of time to really achieve that level of status because you do need that power of compounding involved. So yeah, I, I'd say that's uh, stress and pressure, managing that. I don't think people have the first clue as to how much stress and pressure a lot of these people are are truly under. Um, and so yeah, it, I I personally find it a little silly when people um, really try and knock down billionaires just because of the level of success they've had, and may maybe they achieved it through ethical means or not. I mean, who knows really? But I, I, there's a lot of speculations on no matter who you study. Um, but I I think that just the sheer level of achievement that involves uh, is just. People just don't can't even comprehend. I think um, you know, take Elon Musk for example. Like people try and knock him down because he said X, Y, or Z or Twitter, and that's fine. But you can't discredit the guy for <laughs> the level of success he's achieved. I think he's you know with Chat GBT. I think he's probably on his seventh billion dollar company now or something like that. I mean, it's just it's it's not even comprehensible. It's it's um anyway. So I'm I'm on a tangent there, but, but yeah, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm not really sure exactly like, you know, where the question was, but I'm, I'm on a tangent. So stop me. When, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, do you think it's easier now for people to become billionaires? Cause I think that like strong statement here, I think a hundred K a year is like the new minimum wage, um, depending on your circumstance and goals. So take that with a grain of salt here, people. 
But the point is, is let's use Elon Musk. Let's use Donald Trump. Let's use these people as an example. We're starting to see more of it. At least I think we are with Jeff Bezos is the power of building a personal brand. Like anything that Elon touches, there's a very good chance that just because of his brand and people know him and attention, it could, there's, there's a higher likelihood of anything that he does to be a billion dollar company than probably a failed company, right? Just because the amount of attention, the amount of reach that he has, whereas 50, 100 years ago, obviously inflation, these different factors that come into, you know, making someone a billionaire now versus then. But do you think it's easier now than ever to become a billionaire just because of social media and attention and the ability to build a, a personal brand? Yeah, I think it's factually correct to say that it's it's easier now than ever to become a billionaire. I, I was just I actually was just having this debate with my my wife because there, she had a, a really great argument around, you know, the wealth gap that's being created and how hard it is to catch up. And that's definitely a factor. I think in 22, there were something like 2,600 or 2,700 billionaires in the world. So I can't just, I, I don't know if there's ever been a time in history where there's been that many <laughs> billionaires. So that tells me that, you know, it's got to be easier now than ever to, to become a billionaire. Um, but that's not to discredit, you know, achieving that level of status either. I think getting your foot in the door is harder right um but we have the internet now we have social media as you mentioned we're going to have ai pretty soon i mean i think that these are all tools that really just put us ahead of the curve of folks you know or at least like you know generations of the past and you know it's i won't get into inflation and what's a billionaire today versus you know 1900 or whatever but <laughs> but I, my guess is uh, uh you know just the level of billionaires the sheer number we have now represents the fact that it's probably easier now than ever. Do you think any billionaires, or I mean, I guess if you're able to share this, like any billionaires that you know regret in a way being a billionaire? Because it comes with what seems like a lot of stress and pressure, right? Uh, I'm not a billionaire yet, but I can tell you right now, uh, you definitely made a great statement and I fully align with it, which is step number one is you got to control your income, right? Like you got to start building a business and or you have to be able to the more input you put in, like there has to be a direct correlation with more more output in terms of cash that you're making, right? Whether it's getting started in, in sales, working for somebody like a mentor to learn from and then, you know, kind of start a side gig and or just right out the gate, start a business. Um, but back to the question here is speaking with these billionaires, do you think if they could go back, right? Do you think if they could go back dude, I wish I just would have stopped at a net worth of 500 million, like Tom from MySpace and just go take photos around the world and just kicking it, right? Just just hanging out instead of having all these outside pressures, right? Like you got to perform, you got to show up every day. You have employees, you have food to put on the table, you have shareholders, you have meetings to attend, you have the political side, you have all this attention on you now, right? these things stack up, right? And in reality, there's like a cost of diminishing return of every dollar that they're earning, right? So I'm interested to hear if there's anyone you talk to where you know they've, they've shared any insights like that. Yeah, I, what's coming to mind is, um, I reference Warren Buffett a lot just because he's my kind of biggest um, influence. In, in, the autobiography, or in the biography on him called The Snowball, 
there's some snippets about regret. I mean, I think he, his first wife ultimately left him. Uh, it was a strange arrangement they had, but essentially I think that's a huge regret. I think he wasn't putting enough time into that relationship or just wasn't, I think, emotionally intelligent enough to understand what was, you know, how to change that. And he had some regrets around that. And that, that might be because he was so involved in his work. That's, that's kind of, I think what they alluded to, but I would say that it's a little bit of a reframing of the question that's needed here, because I think the money is very much a byproduct of the personality of these people. Meaning I don't think they are even necessarily setting out to become billionaires. Most of the time, I think that these guys are just hardworking driven people you know, Elon, just to go back to him, not a lot of people remember Zip2, right? Or even I think maybe, yeah, Zip2, I believe was his first company. He was worth, you know, 20 odd million dollars, I think after he sold that company. And he was maybe in his late 20s. You know, he could he could have just sailed off into the sunset very comfortably and not done much else. But he's gone on to do what he's done because you often find once you achieve even like you know, I won't say a small amount of money, but like certainly a level that's, you know, you're beyond comfortable that the money kind of stops mattering. It's, 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 um, it's, it matters to someone like Warren Buffett as a metric for being, uh, it's like the scoreboard because he's a fiduciary to his shareholders and he, his whole role in his mind is investing in capital allocation and creating returns for his shareholders. So for him, he's looking at it as more of like the scoreboard but not as a means of like, you know, take, you know, great example because he still lives in his $30,000 house, right? He's not um, out there on yachts doing X, Y, Z that some other people are. But my point is, I don't know. Uh, he might be, <laughs> he I might don't be. Know, Trey. <laughs> he does own a jet and, and also, a you know, a jet company. But anyway, um, he, the point I guess is that I don't think there's regret as far as, you know, I should have stopped because I had enough. Because I don't think that fits the personality type that these people have. I think that they're just beyond driven. I was talking with a guy um, I was interviewing uh, recently who who came, you know, threw out this phrase that I've remembered where he said he doesn't say the word retirement anymore. He says rewirement because his focus shifts, you know, so for right now, he's obviously beyond comfortable financially. So he's shifted to philanthropy and now he's being very entrepreneurial in that world. And mm -hmm. um, and fighting climate change and doing other things. So there's a rewiring that happens potentially, but not someone. These people are not the kinds who are going to be satisfied sitting on a beach, you know, drinking a mocktail, you know, once they have enough in the bank. Yeah, absolutely. And that is literally what I was just going to bring up. One thing I've started to recognize more and more, and what I've tried to integrate myself personally is just like really, really focusing on lifestyle, right? Like a lot of these people, they're just they're never going to stop. Right. And I think that's a huge issue is most people have the lifestyle that they don't want and they live the wrong lifestyle that they hate and they don't desire. doesn't inspire them. Doesn't they're not committed to it at all. Right. Or they are. And then by the time they retire 50, 60, 70, whatever, they're just looking for that margarita at the beach. Right. Which is absolutely incredible from time to time, but humans, I just don't think are, really wired to do that, right? So it's rewiring your brain to say, wait, how can I build a lifestyle sooner than later, right? That allows me to control my income, whether it's doing a podcast like this, I could do this anywhere, right? We could be in person. We could do this again in Puerto Rico. We could do this in California. We can do it on a Zoom. And 
that's what I started to implement heavily the last 12 months in particular is what's going to allow me to scale the amount of attention control and scale my income because dude, I'm not, I'm not stop. I don't ever want to stop working. It's just my lifestyle. This is just what I do. And I think that's where people uh, essentially go wrong in my, my honest opinion is even on the flip side, like they're working so much versus like, Hey, I, I don't know if I can give advice to a billionaire necessarily, but if, if I could and would, it would just say, well, Hey, maybe you just like change your lifestyle up a little bit, right? Like instead of doing this particular thing, automate, delegate, or tweak this, tweak that. So it's actually sustainable, right? Like you get time working for you. So well, I'm right there with you. I feel incredibly lucky that, you know, I like to say that I was really drawn to the music industry early on and that's where I got my start. And it was primarily because I used to see people on stage, you know, as a kid growing up in these concerts and thinking they looked free, you know, to me because they weren't wearing suits and they were just traveling around and playing music. And it just seemed like, oh man, that's freedom. And then I got to experience it for myself. And I realized very quickly that it was the complete opposite of freedom, actually, because, um, you know, when you're a touring musician, you are a professional traveler. So your time is tied up. And most times you're spending your, your day somewhere you don't really want to be, whether it's like in an airport all day or on a bus or on a plane or in a green room at a bar or club or theater just kind of killing time, you know, for that one hour of music you're going to play that day. And so it, it became obvious to me fairly early on. And I think it's a huge blessing um, that that was actually not as much as I loved music. I really wanted the freedom more. And so that's how my wife and I ended up starting better booch because we thought, you know, music and being, being a musician is very much a service industry, which means it requires your time. So we wanted to pivot to a product industry where, you know, perhaps that product can go out and do, do the work for us. And obviously we, we had a huge passion for the product and, and, uh, but that's how we made that choice early on. And, uh, and then it also was the reason I decided to start learning how to invest because I found so much downtime on the road. I actually got my start learning how to do options trading because I, it was introduced to me as a means of, you know, creating extra income while I was just sitting around or traveling. I've let that go, you know, it, it, to become a value investor. But the point, I guess, is just that that concept and that realization is what set my life on a completely different trajectory about a decade ago. Yeah. I love it, man. Thanks for sharing that because it comes down to, again, the lifestyle, right? Like finding that wealth vehicle, what's actually simplified, scalable. Um, just kind of share some things that we do in mind is we do a lot of content online, social media. Um, have a few different companies, but I believe that one of the by far best, if not the best wealth vehicle is raising capital, right? Like syndicating money for real estate deals, having hedge funds, because you can do that anytime, anywhere, and you can build a team and you can scale it. Whereas if you're a musician, like, yeah, sure, you can sell merchandise streams. It's easier than ever to build out additional streams of income, but to likely get the highest ROI you're going to likely have to exchange your time, right? So great job identifying what I refer to as like the wealth vehicle, right? And that's usually starting with the business. So yeah, expand a little bit more. Like what's your day look like for you and your wife? You guys have Better Booch. It's a kombucha company, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. So we we run that full time. I'm CEO. She's our chief marketing officer. So our roles are almost polar opposites, which I think is very helpful, but also fun. Um, she does all the 
fun stuff, the creative stuff, the brand voice, the um, advertising, anything marketing related, obviously. Um, my role as of late has been more on the fundraising side. So I'm out there networking and looking to do, looking to support the business and its growth financially. So we just hired a CFO about five months ago. And so prior to that, I was kind of CFO. Um, we, we've hired a VP of operations. I, I was doing a lot of ops before that. So my role has changed, but it's usually been on ops and finance. And that's my, that's my typical day to day is it's probably heavily involved in something financial, something operational. And Ashley's very much covering all the marketing things and our, our strategies on that end. So first of all, I should just say, I think it's incredibly important if you're running a business with your wife to, to have very distinct roles. <laughs> That's what we found helped really worked, worked for us. And it's kind of fun because, um, we don't, you know, we get to kind of we have just different skill sets. So I would say that's probably the, you know, that's our nine to five, if you will. But even though it really doesn't feel like that because it's our own business, you know, um, and it really, it's, it's not nine to five. I should say it's probably nine to seven because we do have a 7 p.m. cutoff time for talking about business in the household. So, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, as an entrepreneur, your mind is always on the business. And then the podcast, which I, I started hosting uh, two years ago, is uh, usually my evening work time. So usually after dinner and put the kids down, I'll spend a few hours reading or studying whoever I'm going to be interviewing that week. And I typically do one interview a week. And then the weekends, I try to spend as much time with the family as possible. I love it, man. You're, you're sharing some good stuff here when it comes to uh, the business side. I don't, I don't work with my significant other, but I think one thing you said, whether it is your significant other or it's a key person, on your executive team, like a CFO or a COO handling operations, whatever it may be. When it comes to building a business, 99.9% of the time, if not 100% of the time, you're going to be wearing every single hat, right? Like you're going to be doing the marketing, the sales, um, networking, and keeping those relationships in place, using your own cash and or raising money or getting access to creative financing options, right? Um, but one thing you said, which is super key, I believe the most valuable piece to business is people, right? And with those people being very, very clear and concise on what makes them successful in their specific role. So number one, are they actually on the right bus, right? Like, are they actually supposed to be here in the company? Two, are they actually in the right seat? Are they actually doing the proper role? And then just putting things in place to measure, right? Key performance indicators uh, and communicating and being very, very clear and concise on that, measuring that, but then also having uh, expectations and mutual agreements using you and your wife as an example. I love that you guys are like, yo, seven o'clock. I don't care about kombucha. I don't care about billionaires. I care about, you know, you being, uh, my wife and husband, right. And, and taking care of the kids. So I really like that. It comes down to communication, um, and, and making sure you have the right, the right people there as well. I'm curious on the capital raising side, most CEOs are usually doing three things. They're usually measuring everyone's time, right? Making sure time that they're a master of time, capital, and people, in my personal opinion. And so on that capital side, when it comes to raising money, um, do you mind shedding some light on how you guys have raised capital? Is it through like VCs, family and friends? I think that would be pretty valuable to share uh, with the audience here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to touch on something you said, because I, I don't want to just gloss over that, but you, 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 you specified expectations 
and agreements. And I think that's not to be overlooked because I think a lot of people conflate the two and they're two very different things. Meaning one lesson I've learned over the years that was a hard one for me was setting expectations, but the difference of that and having an actual agreement (laughs) because um, until you have an agreement, nothing's going to get done, right? So if you're running a company and you say, you set an expectation, you throw it in the air, like, I want to get this done, you know, that's, that's an expectation. But if you're not like, can I count on you to get this done by tomorrow? And they say, yes, I'll have this done. You know what I mean? Like that's an agreement now. So you've not only set an expectation, but you, you have an agreement. And so there's gotta be a timestamp, right? Even with personal goals, like, Hey, we got out of this meeting. We know we need to do 17 things, but when are those getting done? Even in your personal life, like, you know, you want to go to the gym, you know, you want to do a marathon or whatever your goals may be, but I, I fully agree. There has to be a date and there has to be a time to it. Yeah. I, I think it's important. And, and an agreement and just understanding the difference has been very powerful for me. So I didn't want to overlook that. Um, and kudos to you for covering it. I, I um, On fundraising, you know, sadly, I don't think there's any, I don't think, you know, I've raised $10 million for Better Booch and yet I still feel like I'm very bad at it. <laughs> so mainly because it is such a numbers game. It's it's akin to, in my mind, what it would be like to be on a, be an actor going on auditions. It's purely a numbers game to a degree. You just have to kind of get. You just have a, have to have a, enough reps in and get enough you know at bats to find the folks who really believe in you. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of like you know maybe pieces of wisdom that I picked up along the way. One of which is, I wouldn't be so scared about venture capitalists. We bootstrapped the business for seven years because we were often told, you know, don't take money from venture capitalists. They're going to take control of the company. They're going to do X, Y, and Z. You won't, you know, they'll run the company essentially. My experience is not, you know, couldn't be farther from that. And I have been pretty mindful about who I've taken money from because it's it's very important to, you know, understand if there's not a culture fit. And I can't express that enough. I feel very, you know, lucky, but it was intentional also that our cap table is very much people I love and, you know, really get along well with. And I feel they're very supportive and we're very aligned, but I've definitely had calls and come close to taking money from folks who, you know, the, my gut check was just sort of like, mm, this doesn't feel right. You know, and I've what, seen others. What were some of those things? Like just, you didn't get good energy from the call or like the yeah. Zoom or. Yeah. I've had they, calls where people talk over you. They, I, I've I had that a lot. So sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, like point, I I had this, I had this one group who was just telling me every, every way the business was going to fail essentially. And, um, you know, and I kept being, you know, we had multiple calls and I kept thinking we were going to get to a place where they were going to say, okay, so here's what we're going to, here's, we're going to offer, you know, whatever. And it just kept not getting there. And and I I just was like, you know what, guys, I got to cut this off. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. You know, I, I just can't give any energy to that, right? I, I don't have time for it. So that was, you know, one that kind of comes to mind. There's been others. I mean, I've had folks come by and visit in person, and it that's always a good, you know, uh, proxy to, you know, to kind of just know how you get along, what the energy is like in the room. And you can just tell if people love the product, if they really believe in you. I, I think at least for early stage companies, but I mean, I don't know, probably well into the later growth stages, the investor is basically betting on the jockey more than the horse. And and I think that if you find investors who are looking more at the horse and not at you, I think that's kind of a red flag. There's a great book 
called Venture Deals. Brad Feld, I believe. I remember this quote of this book that I'll never forget, but it basically said, you know, as soon as an investor starts to feel like a proctologist, you should run away. And I've had that experience as well, where, you know, the diligence is just dragging on and on and on, and they want more and more information and more information. And they're just getting insanely granular on certain things that ultimately are not that important, right? Because at the end of the day, you're making a bet on if, if, you know, Ashley and I are going to figure this out or not. Right. So it's a, it's yeah, a big, yeah, the product is important. Right the metrics, like- yeah. Metrics are important, but the people are really, I think the deciding factor, um, especially with early businesses. On. Yeah. Especially early on, especially early on, dude. It's like, all right, do you really need X, Y, Z where we spent, you know, $17 or this or that, like, obviously the financials are ridiculously important, but it's not like, you know, Apple, uh, trying to go get VC money or something like that. Right. Or, or you get the point. Right. So I, that's, that's huge feedback because I would imagine the comment that you mentioned right out the gate, when it comes to fundraising, you're like, well, I think I suck at it. Um, no, it just probably, you're probably great at it. I mean, raising, raising a dollar is not easy, let alone $10 million. So shout out to you. That's, that's incredible. Um, you probably just have enough self-awareness that a lot of it does come down. I genuinely believe it comes down to you're in a weird way, kind of like marrying this person as well, right? Like if they they text you or email you, there's way more to it than just providing an ROI when it comes to raising money. Now I'm speaking a little bit more like on the real estate side and um, you know some other hedge fund things that we have, but um, that's something that I think a lot of times people people overlook. Personally, me. I'd rather raise from two people that are super cool. They align with values, beliefs. They're not going to really bother you or breathe down your neck versus raise from one person that will do that. Right. So huge insight there. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would also say as much as I study investors like Warren Buffett and I know that they exist when it comes to venture capitalists, sadly, and I, this might change now with the current economy, but I've often found that these guys are more momentum traders than they are investors, which it sounds a little maybe harsh. But the point is like, I've seen folks do all the diligence and have all this conviction and then talk to someone else, a friend or whoever, who is like, you know, maybe has a different opinion and they change their mind, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's sort of like a herd mentality takes over. And um, if it's not the biggest, brightest, hottest deal on the street, it can be really hard to raise money from VCs. So just knowing that, you know, a momentum is a, is a huge factor and, and just momentum also with fundraising, meaning like, you know, I, I would just say I'm going off on, I've, I guess I have more advice on this topic than I thought, but basically one, one piece of advice that I think is really key is setting a very clear window of when you're raising so you can you can well back up first first i think what's really helpful is to keep your network informed of what you're doing almost at all times whether you're raising or not keeping and letting them have a pulse so we send out a weekly newsletter essentially on the business just to almost everyone we've come across with whether they invested or not and it's just sort of like hey here's what the company's doing so they always kind of have a general sense it's a very short it could be one piece of news and then, you know, by the time you do go to fundraise, most people are warm, you know, to the conversation. And you set a very clear timeline. Hey, you know, we're opening the round on this date and I'm available for diligence for six weeks after that. And then we're reviewing term sheets 
and that's it, right? And then we're we're closing the deal. So giving investors not only a sense of urgency, but sort of a a finish line to work against, because otherwise I've seen deals, and I'm guilty of this myself in, in rounds where we've just lost momentum because we were engaging in conversations. They were kind of taking their time. We were, you know, they're probably a partner we really wanted to have on the, on board. So we were going along with it, but that kind of is sacrificing other conversations we were having. And then before you know it, the round's been open too long and people are like, why isn't this closed yet? You know, and you can just start losing momentum. And so that can be a death knell uh, for fundraising as well. Yeah, absolutely. Usually the three words that come to mind for me when it comes to raising capital is no like, and trust, right? So putting out um, a newsletter, posting content, I think that's just where everything just comes back to attention, right? Like even being on this, this show, like how do I get the most amount of people to know me? Because there's no way anyone will ever like or trust you unless they know you, right? So for what, what you guys do, you guys do a newsletter, here's who we are, what we do, why we do it. Uh, and here's, you know, specific updates within the organization, but coming back to employees, coming back to people, there has to be a deadline, right? There has to be, we're raising $2 million and all capital has to be, you know, contributed in 30 days or whatever that, that round looks like for you. Right. So, uh, incredible feedback and insight there. What is the number one piece of advice and, or I guess, quote or mantra that you live by? Wow. That's a good question. Mantra that I live by. Um, you know, we have Warren Buffett that says rule number uh, yeah. one, don't lose money. Rule number two. What I was going to say is a Buffett quote, which is probably not surprising, but my general sense is that I'm a, he says, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman, better businessman because I'm a, I'm an investor. And I find that I try to adopt that as much as possible. Meaning I took on the podcast, uh, a financial podcast, which is like, unlike anything I've done in my career, you know, coming from kombucha and prior to that music. Right. So, uh, it's very, it was very much a challenge and the purpose of it was to self-reinforce my business skills, right. With, with better booch. So what I learned from investing in all these great billionaire investors, I try to, you know, I tried to apply to my business. And what I learned in my business, I try to take to investing, meaning the more I understand my business, the more I'm able to understand other people's businesses. And that helps with investing. So um, that is a mantra I've tried to adopt. I, I would I would just add this kind of general point from this conversation I had recently about the guy I was interviewed, Michael Sonnenfeld, was talking about how entrepreneurs are not often not great investors. And I do think this is a very interesting point that's like worth noting, but it makes sense to a degree because a lot of entrepreneurs, they're more interested in the building side of things. And then once they've sold their company and they have a lot of money, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know you know, how to diversify it, or they're just not that great at it. And I think that's avoidable. If you study Warren Buffett, if you study others who are similar, Buffett kind of was more of an investor before he became a businessman, but he's very much a businessman. He's very much an entrepreneur. I don't think he gets enough credit for being an operator. I think people just think of him as a stock picker, but I mean, he basically invested into a textile mill, okay. textile manufacturer. He invests in it. And does that company do textiles anymore? No. Right. Like he completely changed that company to be this behemoth that is today. So that's, that's an entrepreneur. Essentially what you're saying is to be very, very, very successful in business, you have to be very good at investing. And as you're talking, I'm thinking through 
people in my network that are good at business, like they're successful for sure, but they're not really great investors, right? Like they're handing me all their cash to invest. Great. That's awesome. There's half of me that believes in that. Like, this is not what you want to do, right? You don't care about learning and investing, you know, to be honest with you, 99.9% of it is very boring. And I totally get why someone would just much rather focus on their business. I think most people should, because there's just not always going to be a direct ROI in terms of saying that because they sacrificed all their evenings and weekends, they made an extra 20% return on investment because they're phenomenal investors. They may have way significant more ROI spending time doing other things with their family, their friends, or again, growing their business. Maybe they can grow their business 40% versus 20%. That said, people in my network I've recognized that are very, very successful, like just on a different level, right? Like some billionaires in my network, they are usually the ones that are great at business and great at investing. So it doesn't mean you have to be both. I think it's just something to reflect on and uh, as you're kind of building out your wheelhouse of skill sets and your goals to keep that in mind. So phenomenal mantra to live by. Yeah, I, I, I use this phrase and it's a nerdy one, but it's it's directly from Warren Buffett. But as CEO of Better Booch, for example, I, I think of myself as the capital allocator, meaning every decision I do every day, all day long is an investment. And I think if you reframe your, 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 your lens in that way, that idea really starts to make sense. And they don't seem so opposite of each other, right? They're, they are self-reinforcing. And if you look at every, everything, whether it's hire, hiring somebody or proving a, a marketing budget or whatever, what have you, it's, um, it's an investment. So, you know, it's, I, I have that fiduciary obligation to decide every dollar that's being spent at Better Booch and it better have a return involved or some prospect of a return and, or it could be time as well as dollars, but it's gotta be, it's always an investment, I guess. Yeah. Like I said, CEOs, then the best CEOs, they're, they're the best capital allocators. They know how to allocate time, energy, people, and money. Right. And they're all in a sense, one and the same. So I couldn't agree more. What is the number one mistake that you've made so far in your personal life and or business life? Well, I think it kind of ties into what we're talking about, actually, because as you said that, as you shift your framework to be a capital allocator, certain things come into light. And one, one was a mistake of misallocation of time. So I would say one of my bigger mistakes starting the business was taking too long to delegate things just because I thought it was actually saving money. I wasn't valuing my own time until I had a mentor who wasn't, he was basically saying that don't even value your time as to what your salary is. Value your time based on the value of the company divided by your time. Because ultimately, if you're driving the company, the value of that company is dependent on you. And so, you know, there was probably years um, too long of me maybe dropping a case of kombucha to a coffee shop that was sort of on my way home uh, before we had distribution or something and not like delegating that to somebody else or, you know, and that, that had other like, you know, I guess pros to it, but there, there was little things like that where um, good, good example, something we've utilized recently is, you know, say something gets delivered to the office. I'm not at the office me driving to the office to get it doesn't make much sense. We just like hire an Uber and we put it in the Uber and have the Uber sent 
you know, because it's like that, yeah, it costs money to do that. But the idea of spending my time going to drive 30 minutes to get the thing and do X, Y, Z doesn't make sense anymore. And so anyway, I think it's hard, especially when you're bootstrapping early on to justify more, more expenses. But if you can understand the time trade-off and, and, and believe that your time is being better spent impacting business in other ways, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Usually it's, you know, part like of an ego thing. No one can do it better than me. Um, and sure, that may be the case, but really one rule and principle I come back to is a lot of times no one can do it better hypothetically than the CEO, especially right out the gate, especially right as you're scaling, right? That said, if someone can get 60, 70% of the results, will that still grow the business? and get you back 100% of your time? Probably so. Cool. You likely need to automate or delegate it. And then the second piece is, at least what I've struggled with talking to my personal experiences, I personally start to get this weird feeling like if my day is not completely full, I think I've talked about this on every single episode show, is I call it the space of genius. It's like if you're reading a book, right? Like if you're reading a book that has just a bunch of words on it, it's really hard to read. Whereas if there's indentation, there's space between paragraphs, data shows that a brain can actually get through that page quicker and they can retain the information. So for me, what I'm learning as I'm scaling out multiple businesses and doing all these things, now there are some days where there's some space. And naturally, like an entrepreneur that I am, I try to fill that space in sometimes. It's like, no, no, no. It's it's okay to have some space. That's where the space of genius, that's where that next great idea comes. That's where you're able to reflect and project what else needs to be done uh, and or you just kind of be, right? Just just be so you don't get burnt out, so you don't ruin relationships. And, um, and at the end of the day, I, I just genuinely think that the space of genius is so crucial because as you start automating, delegating, you could have some like insecurities that you're not valuable or... You need to be work, 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 right? And again, there's a cost of diminishing return to that. I genuinely believe that. So great insight there. Um, very, very common that a lot of entrepreneurs, especially getting started, really hard to uh, automate and delegate things. I personally believe it comes back to the roles and responsibilities, like understanding how to like actually articulate that to be able to hire someone to show them step-by-step. Because you're going to have to invest probably a little even more time to show them how to go to that pay, that space to drop off the kombucha, right? Or to do whatever, to send an email out this way. Like there's going to be a little bit more sacrifice and then you can hand that that task, um, you know, off to somebody else. So um, what, what have you seen over the last couple of years to be the biggest, and just in your conversations and intuition, whatever it may be, what do you think is going to be the the best opportunity ahead of us? Is it a specific asset class? Um, yeah, what do you see? What do you see moving forward here, as far as investing in the opportunities ahead? Well, I, I I mean I am a big Bitcoiner, so I probably would say that is still probably the most asymmetric thing I've I've found. Um, but beyond that, I, I would just specify again. I kind of reframe it as as. You know, I would invest in what you know because, um, you know, going back to Buffett again, he's got that circle of competence rule, 
And it doesn't mean your circle of competence can't grow. You know, he obviously ultimately invested in Apple, even though he was not a tech guy for many, many years or decades. So it can change and grow as long as you're understanding it. I mean, I think I find myself looking at lots of opportunities in food and beverage, right? Because that's what I do on a daily basis. And I do feel like I, I understand that more than any other industry. And, you know, it's funny to watch Satya Nadella talk about how they're integrating chat GBT with Bing. And now that's going to be the new era of search with AI behind it. And, you know, is now Microsoft the most valuable? I mean, I don't know. Like that's, that's stuff that I could say, I can very much see and say, okay, there, there's some major prospects there, but it's probably over my head. In Warren Buffett's case, he's got this folder on his desk or this little like, um, this little tray where it says too hard, you know, and sometimes he he's looking at companies, he throws it in the too hard pile. Some, I think understanding your limitations is actually the better course of action. Uh, again, like Munger likes to say that they, they've just been less stupid than other people for a longer period of time. And that's why they're so successful. And, and there's, there's a, there's a, I think large degree of truth to that, right? Just knowing where the gaps are, where those like, you know, FTX, perfect example. Um, that's something that was pretty obvious to, to most from the outside looking in. I mean, anything crypto related where it's a centralized coin and you, you know, someone's pulling all the levers behind it is, is suspect. Um, but just staying away from those kind of things can, uh, can be all the difference. You know, unfortunately, Tom Brady put a big check in, you know, that's that not going to be ruinous for him, but certainly a major ding on his, you know, wealth uh, over time. And so just avoiding things like that cannot be overstated. And so I think you do that by investing in what you know. So for Tyler, in your case, if it's real estate, you mentioned head funds as well, but you know, if that's your circle of competence, your main, I don't think it's bad to be pretty, pretty uh, concentrated in something like that. Um, again, Buffett says like diversification is for when you don't know what you're doing. And if you do know what you're doing, um, concentrating is the best key to growing wealth. You know, most of my, most of my net worth is wrapped up in better booch. You know, I'm okay with that because it's something I understand very well. And I, and I feel like I have a lot of influence on it. And so I'm okay being concentrated in that way. And then once you have wealth, it's probably important to start diversifying, right? <laughs> so that's yeah. the, that's the trade-off. So once I'm there, you know, I'll probably start looking more into real estate and other things. But for most who are just starting out, I think it's okay to be concentrated as long as it's in something you know and understand. And, um, and if you just try and do a little extra work to not follow the herd, not be a momentum trader and not just follow the headlines, you know, I think you'll do okay. Absolutely. I'll throw an extra word in there, which is what I believe people should consider investing in who and what they know, or actually you just said what I meant, I meant who, uh, so throwing in who investing in who and what, you know, coming back to that, that mantra, right? It's like, if you're running a business or you have a job that's super demanding or you legitimately just, I don't know, maybe, maybe you don't care to learn, but you know somebody in your network, you've been watching them, you trust them, you like them, essentially investing into a person, right? If it's their real estate deals, if it's their business, I think that's where a lot of people go wrong, right? Is, is they don't even want to make that transition of being an entrepreneur and an investor whether that's good or bad, I don't know. I think it just comes down to your values and beliefs. But a lot of times people go, oh, I want to get into real estate. Tyler, how do I, how do, I do it? And I'm like, well, why do you want to get into real estate? X, Y, Z, tax benefits, this and that. 
I'm like, okay, well, I'm not giving you financial advice, consult with your own counsel, right? But you know, there's other tax things that you can do. That's really what you're going after. You don't care about real estate. Ah, oh, you're right. You need to focus on your business. You need to keep growing your business. I mean, that thing is growing 50, 60, 70%. That's ridiculous. Just, yo, stay there. Just pay some money to get a better accountant or a tax strategist or some advisors, right? So I think it's really coming down to that as well to say, do that's, you really want to buy good- real estate? <laughs> Yeah, that's such a good point. I, my brother-in-law's in real estate and he said the exact same thing to me. And I think it was the best advice. My my wife and I were looking at buying a duplex here in LA at one point or something, fourplex, something like that, uh, to do a rental income unit. And he was like, Trey, can you imagine if you had to, you know, leave a meeting with Target because like someone's washing machine was broken and like you had to be the, you know, you're the landlord and you got to go fix it. Like he's like, stick with your company <laughs> because you're going to compound Dude, wealth be, much faster there. There'd be no seven o'clock deadline. The wife would be out the door, man, the kiddos or, or gonzo. So I, I I fully agree with that. I started my real estate journey doing the house act. I dropped out of college at Ohio State here in Columbus, lived in one side, rented out the other. And I have people that are in their 30s or 40s or 50s. I'm not saying that you can't do it. In fact, I genuinely believe that is arguably one of the best ways, if not the best way to get started. But one, I'm very biased because that's how I did it. And I can only speak on that experience. But number two, it's like, you know, if I had kids, zero chance. I'm personally going into a duplex, but I also do know other people that they did have kids and that's how they did get get started. And that's what they live by. So it's just values and beliefs, right? I think a lot of times people get a little too caught up in the paper ROI, like what's on paper versus the intangible ROI. You can't measure the intangibles. So investing in who and what you know. Um, one thing that you mentioned as well is if it's too hard, right? If it's not simple, it's probably not scalable either. So if someone's trying to get money from you or you're trying to invest into something and you don't understand it, you may need to do a little bit more research. If you don't know what Bitcoin is in and out, doesn't mean that you can't throw some cash in there and you don't need to be like a full-blown expert. I don't know. Got to be throwing out some disclaimers here. I'm not giving you financial advice, but you get the point, right? Like, is it is it simple? Is it scalable? Does it align with my values and my beliefs? So great so insight on that, there. On that last point, I'll add to that Buffett even does this and Tom Gaynor does this and some other amazing value investors where if they have interest in something, they will invest a very small amount. And it, it's it's sort of like this wetting the beak mentality where you, once you're invested, you, I don't know if you're incentivized necessarily, but you, you definitely are more interested in learning more about the thing. And so it's just sort of like, it opens up that door. And I think it also alleviates a, a kind of fear of FOMO, right? Where you, you can often feel like, oh, you see Bitcoin's price skyrocketing and maybe you don't understand it. But like, if you had $10 in it, you know, at least you feel like, all right, well, you know, I'm capturing some of that. I mean, it's a very small amount, but it takes away a little bit of the FOMO and could potentially open your, you know, your interest a little bit more into learning about what you're invested in. So again, not putting it, we're talking about very small amounts of money. Um, but it's just to kind of trigger that, uh, interest. Dude. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. The first thing that came to mind is like, when you get a new car, whatever that technical too smart science terminology is for me, you get a new car, right? Um, I drive a wealth wagon is what I call it. It's a, it's a white G wagon. I use the section 179 plus bonus depreciation to have a pretty major tax write-off. And plus, hey, I want a G-Wagon. 
The point is though, I notice when other people have G wagons, right? And so I think it's kind of the same thing is like, if you throw some money into something, when you're taking a shit scrolling on your phone and you see a headline about Bitcoin and you don't really fully, fully understand what it is. Well, Hey, I got a little bit of money in here. Let me click on this article and read a little bit. Why is BlackRock getting involved? What is this FTX thing? So I do like that. That's, that's something I've never actually thought of is, um, I think, again, like you said, di diversification can be potentially bad for people because you're just like chasing all these different rabbits. But if you can throw some in there, you have some intelligence around it or you trust somebody, you become a little bit more aware. You start to see the other cars. You start to see the headlines. You start to see catches your attention and, and you're a little bit more motivated to, to dive in a little bit more. I want to touch on uh, something else you threw out there earlier, and it was related to you know the advice you're giving a friend trying to get into real estate. And one thing I don't think anybody does, I mean, I, this could be so naive of me, and maybe this is what you do when you have an actual financial advisor. I'm sure it is. I, d I don't, I, I do my own stuff, so I don't know. But um, I did have a conversation with a financial advisor early on, and he was like, How much can you lose? And I was like, None of it, you know, which is the wrong answer. But the point is, the, you know, I, I kind of uh, got into it for myself, um, for better or for worse since then. But my point, I, I guess I'm getting at, is knowing what's enough, because I don't think people do this exercise where they say, okay, you know, when do I actually feel like I want to retire where I don't have to work? How much money is that going to require, you know, to, to, to actually fund my lifestyle and imagine it's going to be probably decades from now. So inflation and everything that goes along with it. Um, and then back working backwards from there, because so often it depends on how much money you're starting with. Some people are starting with zero. Some people have couple hundred grand of savings or whatever. And, it, and it's a totally different uh, profile, you know? So meaning someone might need 25% annual returns to get to their goal. Another person might need eight, you know? And so if you only need eight, then like indexing is great. You know, that's probably the safest thing you could possibly do and dollar cost average into an index. And you're going to get where you need to be if you're starting with X amount and you only need that kind of return. So I just don't know if a lot of people you know, understand the why, as you put it, you know, to what, to why they're getting into what they're getting into. It's got to have that why attached to it. And oftentimes it's best to work backwards. Absolutely. Yeah. Math is the path, right? Like doing simple things that anyone and everyone can do. I'm sure that you can definitely relate. I've, I've personally always been very inspired with money, making a lot of it because I grew up poor and I just always knew I wanted to build big things. Right. And that was going to involve, involve money. And I also want to give back and I'm, you know, starting to do that the last couple of years was is awesome, but it, it comes down to like, okay, what have I done to get to this point? Right. And what do other people that are financially on paper, not as you know wealthy as me, let's say, well, one, they get scared. They run away from it. Like fear usually derives anything and everything that we do. Right. But it's really not that complicated. Like if I can understand money and I can understand certain simple things, like number one, measuring where you are today. Okay. What is my current net worth? How do I figure out my net worth? Complete a personal financial statement, right? Just brain dump everything down on the worksheet. You can Google personal financial statement, walk through that, right? And then go- Assets and liabilities, you know, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then you go, okay, well- this is the lifestyle. These are my expenses. You know, I want that to go up, reverse engineer the numbers. So are these some things that you notice like billionaires doing, um, 
or maybe are there some things that you know they're doing doing significantly different than people after you know they get to a certain point i would say that with billionaires it's never accidental meaning what they're doing has a lot of intention behind it and and to by the time i'm speaking with them they're usually well you know they're obviously beyond wealthy um and so the intention lies in whatever mission they're 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 you know after and so you know elon's trying to make the planet multi planetary you know our and our species multi-planetary and that's a huge mission and that just happens to be his one you know it doesn't have to be yours but that's that's where these people are often are when we're when we're finally talking to them and um you know even buffett who's i think more of a gamer in a way i think his his career has been built on um the scoreboard right and and but ultimately leading to the fact that he wanted to compound his money as much as possible so he could give back as much as possible and you know i think the you know luckily bill gates got him to start giving away earlier than, than later and so um we're seeing the impact sooner than later but point being is um everything they do is intentional and which means that they very much understand the why behind what they're doing and they're not just get, getting into frivolous investments because someone told them to or their or their neighbors doing it a lot of times these guys are very critical thinkers and very much moving to the beat of their own drum and uh sometimes very contrarian and and it's not to be contrarian just to be contrarian is you got to be contrarian and be right right but um but oftentimes they're contrarian by nature because herd mentality kicks in for the rest of us and they go against the grain. So I think just intention is the word that comes to mind or, and the why yeah, they're, they're definitely not doing anything on a whim. Absolutely. Yeah. It's creating that. I think of, uh, of mission. It's like those cheesy mission statements that you create. Right. And they're just proven. There's a reason why every successful company has a mission statement uh, for one of our companies, 0%. It's a financial education company. We want to empower people with information, with a community and, and help 100,000 people become financially independent, help them ideally use other people's money to create passive income that exceeds your expenses. That in my eyes is financial independence, right? But that's our company's mission, right? You got to create those missions and each and everything that you're doing. And then I believe you have to have like one overarching mission because if you're an entrepreneur and let's say that you got to fire somebody like you can come back to that mission too like you can you can make the game a lot a lot easier right you can say look you don't align with the mission or yo I'm cutting this person out or I'm cutting this thing out of my life or these places that I'm going to it doesn't align with the mission right like here's the target here's where we need to go there's going to be a lot of noise along the way i still feel like i don't know anything yet right but at the end of the day, like we're getting a little bit closer to those missions. So I, I like that, right? There's a lot of paper uh, numbers that we can, numbers we can put down on a paper, but why, right? Because yeah, it aligns I, with the mission. Yeah. And I would say um, it's reminding me of what my wife and I do at the top of each year. So I can share that. But um, we set our goals like everyone probably does. What we've done is we bucket it into seven different categories. We call it the seven F's. So it's our, it's our family goals, our financial goals, our fitness goals, our fun goals. <laughs> so it's like our, our playtime, our friend goals, you know, how much we want to do for that, our faith goals, which could be take it, you know, that to me, what you 
what you will. And that's almost like, I like that faith is like anything you're dedicated to outside of work, friends, family, et cetera. Yeah. Faith, fun, friends, fitness, family. And I know there's another one that I'm totally blanking on. I'll come back to it. I promise. If I have to go, I'll go get the sheet. <laughs> all good. But, yeah. All good. How do people keep it? Because we talked about. Oh, can I, I remember. Third. I remember the seventh. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's function. And, um, and it's function because it's a little, the reason it's hard to, hard to remember is it's a little bit of a stretch, but I think a function is your work. So, you know, what is your work goals? So, um, you know, and that, that could be something it's, it's different from financial because your financial can be your family's financial goals. Right. And then if you have your own like personal goals with your work or your function, whatever that is, um, you add that as well. I try to keep it to three per group, you know, at least three and go up to like five or whatever. But, um, we actually do a, um, poster board and we use post-it notes and we, we have different colors. So if it's a shared goal, it's a certain color post-it. If it's my goal, I have my own color. She has her own color and we review it once a month. And we just kind of make sure we're being intentional with our time. You know, if we, if, if opportunities come up like an investment opportunity, we consult our goals. You know, we say, does this kind of align with what we're trying to get done? Because if you don't do that, so many things can be, become distractions and it's important to say no to things, just stay focused. Dude, yeah, it's it's all about being adaptable to the, right? Like coming back to the Warren Buffett, taking the textile company and transitioning it, adapting. It's like Jeff Bezos turning Amazon from a book company to let's take over uh, the entire world before Elon sends us all to Mars. But in reality, you can't be adaptable unless you're focused as hell. Like I call it night vision focus. Like you got to go. I'm an Aaron Rodgers fan, by the way. So Tom Brady, thank you for finally retiring. Um, <laughs> but it's it's funny. He's about to make a decision on his retirement going into a four-day dark retreat where it's like you and your thoughts. I genuinely think that's how goals should be. That's how um, our, our focus level should be is like that tunnel vision, night vision focus where those little shiny object syndromes that come into that room, they're going to be distracting, right? Like you're going to want to want to grab, but until you can turn the light switch on yourself, that's when you can become adaptable in my, in my opinion. Uh, I want you to share a little bit more um, for those listening that might be working with their significant other, considering working with their significant other, like what are some things that you can share with, you know, people that are married, they have kids, you're balancing, a lot of different things, man. And you guys yeah. are fit. Uh, you know, I want you to kind of just share all your secret sauce. Like what, what are some routines you do share, share all the above. Yeah. Um, so if you're just getting started, it's important to have boundaries early on. We would have a monthly check-in, sorry, weekly check-in on Sundays together on the business. But after a while, as the business grew, we were able to carve out our own roles and, and have separate responsibilities. When you're just starting out, it's almost impossible. So I'm not setting the expectation like, you know, she was only doing marketing on day one. If you're in a startup, everyone's wearing all the hats <laughs> you gotta, and you got to help each other out for, for a period of time, at least. But it's that's Most the time, of the time that's, it's therapy, too. Well, it's yeah, like, you know, I need yeah. 30 minutes of ranting. <laughs> yeah, there. I, I came across this recently and it's a good tool where um Basically, the question is, do you want comfort or support uh, or solutions? I, I guess comfort or solutions. So meaning it's mm -hmm. it's often 
important to distinguish that when you're talking, because sometimes you're also not sure if I'm talking to my wife or if I'm talking to my CMO or I'm talking to, you know, Dude, our, yeah. our, our co-founder. So it's, it's sort of like you have to, it's not always clear, right. Where, where it's coming from. So sometimes you have to step back and say, okay, are you looking for comfort or solutions? Cause it's, you know, I'm always quick to jump to solutions. Obviously that's just right, how yeah. my brain works. And it's so much harder to just be, to learn the comfort side of things. So um, I'd say that's important to kind of understand the difference. Um, Dude, I like that a lot. I, I apologize for keeping interrupting here, but that is massive. I think I saw like a Jonah Hill uh, show pop up like on Netflix where I think he's doing like a documentary with his stuts. therapist. Yeah. 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 I got it. Is it good? It's great. I loved it. Dude, I don't, I don't know if his like whole style changed. I think I watched another movie like a, a week ago or so. But I'm like, dude, Jonah Hill is cool as hell. He's like all tatted up. He's got like having a moment to him now. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I love it. But one thing he said, or maybe I'm making this up. It was like, we go to our friends and our loved ones and people in our network and we'll, we'll just vent to them. We'll share our problems or maybe, maybe we're sharing successes. Right. And a lot of times those people are trying to, they start like telling us what to do. They give us feedback and advice. And we're like, yo, I just want you to listen. Like, can I just talk? And you just shake your head and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, they want the comfort. We go to a therapist. We want the therapist to get us results. In reality, they're just, they're just writing usually on a notepad, right? They're just, they're comfort. But in reality, that's, that's genuinely what most, most people want that. So that's a phenomenal point why I had to interrupt you there is I'm learning that as well. Is like when I'm hearing employees or, you know, partners of mine, you know, talk to me about things. I'm like, oh, wow. Most, most, not all the time. Most of the time, they just, they just need to vent. They just need to get off their chest. A lot of people hold things in, especially men. A lot of men just kind of hold things in. We're super result driven. Vice versa, especially if you're working with a spouse, you're running the household together, running the businesses together. It's, it's understanding how to communicate, how you want communicated to. She could be like, Hey. I just want you to hear me. I don't, I don't need results. Just listen to what I'm saying the next two minutes. Right. Anyways, let you dive back in. That yeah. was you're right. You're spot feedback. on. You're spot on. I, I would also say that, you know, I think obviously you have to comfort each other when you're in a relationship. I do think there's a distinction there as well, where you, you, you probably shouldn't be each other's therapists. Right. So we've, we've both made it a point to have our own individual therapy. We have couples therapy, it depends on where we are in the season. We'll either do one or the other. Um, but I also have a CEO coach and a CEO peer group. And that's often a time on the business side to, to, to have people call me on my BS, right? Because um, even though you're partners and if you're, if you're uh, significant others, you know, that's not always the dynamic you want is, you know, and, and you need it oftentimes, right? You need like, I need people to tell me where I'm going wrong. And sometimes it's harder if that's coming from your spouse, you know, it could be, it, it, you can convolute things quickly. So I think it's important to find those outlets uh, for growth. That's not necessarily tied to your partner. And she and I both do that independently. And I think it's been a huge help for both of us. Um, and then I'll just finish off with the obvious stuff. Like we both meditate. Uh, we're both mindful. We both, we both have a fitness regimen that's separate from each other. Um, one of the, one of the best things we bought in the last year was an infrared sauna for the house. So I highly, <laughs> highly encourage that. Um, that's a great time yeah. to just have time with your significant other and, and check in and do something healthy. And, um, and anyway, um, so yeah, we have health. I think it's that, it's that 
principle of putting the oxygen mask on yourself before helping others. I mean, that you got to be two complete people, uh, together and, um, and you, you can't control each other's happiness. You can't control each other's stress and people have different tolerances for stress. So if you are starting a business with your spouse, you got to make sure that they're up for that kind of roller coaster because it is not a linear up and to the right, you know, just like a stock price, it's going to be volatile and go up and down, um, hopefully up into the right over time. But um, some people can tolerate that a lot better than others. And you got to understand the dynamic between the two. Uh, you, you do find two people who are very entrepreneurial together. My wife and I are like this. We we wouldn't really have it any other way, but I've definitely seen scenarios where one is entrepreneurial, one is not. Um, and that's a bad combination if the one who's not is not in a support role, right? Because um, if you're Tom Brady going at example, going on the field, you know, you probably want Giselle on the sidelines not, you know, the running back. It's like, if you're, if you're, that's okay. There's, you can be both. You can have a support system or you can have someone who is on the field with you. It's just a matter of knowing that in advance and, and, and having that expectation and agreement, because if you don't, and you get too far down the road, I've seen ugly things happen. Yeah, absolutely. It comes down to, I'm pretty big on like spirituality as well. And I would say relatively early in my journey, I think we're all early in the journey of, of different things, but masculinity and femininity, right. Or however the hell you say it, it's really just understanding like, okay, most of the time masculine energy is going to be the leader. So instead of saying, Hey, this is, uh, what, what do you think we should be done? Like, yo, they're in a support role in the business. Like you're the masculine, you're the leader, you're the CEO, you're the decision maker. So you're going to say, this is the decision. I'm seeking to make, I'm open to feedback, but then she may be the decision maker in the household on certain things. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I, I say she's CEO of the household, right? Cause, and that's, that's a good distinction as well to know when the hats change and the dynamic changes, <laughs> but that's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I've noticed that with people that have a similar dynamic uh, in my network of what you guys have as well. And they hit on a lot of things. It comes back down to like the space of genius of i don't know maybe maybe there's something wrong with me but dude i gotta i gotta go to the gym by myself i gotta have that like time in the car where i'm blasting my music or or silence it's a space of genius you got to get in the infrared saunas by yourself sometimes with your own thoughts right 100 and, and i think the, the space of genius is so so key so crucial that said i want you to touch a little bit more on like the coaching and mentorship side and then we'll wrap this up here in the next like 10 minutes or so, depending on how much time you have left. But the coaching and mentorship side, I think you have to be also, well, number one, why, why do we get coaches and mentors? I believe it's one thing. We're collapsing the time to get access to the right information in a respective uh, field, career, or specific situation. How do we learn what that person learned in 10 years, in 10 minutes, or in 10 weeks, right? Also have to be a little careful on thinking that something's always wrong though, right? Like thinking that you're like, you know, something's always wrong. So one thing I've noticed is I've hired tons of coaches and mentors, but no one kind of like when it cuts some of them off or knowing we're like, yo, I think you're legitimately wrong. I know I'm right. How, how do you deal with those coaches, mentors, therapists, um, and those potential stories that you make up in your head that something's always wrong and has to be fixed? Yeah. I can say that I've 
the way I went about it, I, I joined a group called Vistage. It's it's a in a global CEO peer group. Typically, your business has to be over five million, I think, to join. But you basically are a group with fifteen other CEOs, and there's a chair, and the chair is your coach, and and you meet with him or her one on one once a month as well. So one thing I've learned from Vistage, and I think they do things that um, it's a little bit different maybe than what you think. And I was inspired to join Vistage by reading the book Trillion Dollar Coach, which I, I also recommend because that's about all these major CEOs of Silicon Valley, Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, et cetera. They all had actually the same coach at times. This one guy uh, who's pretty remarkable. It's a great book. Inspired me. It, it, it just is a clear sign of no matter where you are in your career, if these guys need a coach, you probably do too. But I guess the realization I've had through that journey over the last three or four years has been, I've looked at coaching a lot differently um, than I did at the outlet. We joke even to this day, my coach and I, because the first day we sat down, I had Excel sheets and I was just saying, okay, here's what I'm doing. Here's what, what where am I going wrong? Like, what, how would you do this? How would you do blah, blah, blah. And he was like, whoa, man, this is, I don't know if I'm your coach. Cause this is like, not what I do. And I, I was like, what do you mean? You know? And, um, it turns out the process, at least through Visage, is very much about self-discovery uh, and not advice. You know, so meaning like he he's he's almost like a therapist in that he asks questions and uh, he makes you think. And I I I have a love hate relationship with it to be honest because it's very much like going to the gym for a hard workout <laughs> every time every time I see it on the calendar I'm like ah I'm like dreading it you know but then after I'm leaving and I'm always like thrilled that I did it and I'm always kind of walking away with some new way of thinking that I wasn't uh, going in with but it's never him being like I wouldn't say never sometimes he just says look do you want advice but but typically that's like the last thing he does and we try to get there in other ways and it's usually by answering questions so one uh, framework we use is um, defining the question very clearly. So he'll say, okay, what's your how do I today? And that's the start of the question. How do I do what? How do I know if I need to fire somebody? How do I know? How how do I grow the business to this now? Or, or it could be, I mean, it could be anything. But so often than not, or more often than not, the how do I changes. So we'll, I'll start with the how do I. We'll ask some clarifying questions. We'll stress test some stuff. And then we come back to, okay, what's the real how do I? And it's usually something deeper. It's usually something more personal. It's usually something unexpected because it's hard to solve the right problem with the wrong question, I guess is the, what I'm getting at. So to me, that's what a coach does. He helps you or she helps you cut through. They're like a, you know, with a machete going through the jungle, like you, just, you have to hack through the narratives and these stories and all these things we tell ourselves to get to like the root cause of why you are doing or not doing something, right? Because so often than not, if I'm saying, you know, how do I know if I got to fire this person? Probably there's a reason, probably the answer is solved, right? He probably should, he or she should be fired. Why am I not doing it is the real question, right? <laughs> so like, what is that getting at about me and what I'm doing wrong? So it, it turns out to be much more personal. And I would say you seek out either a coach or a group like that for unbiased feedback, because no matter how much you love your spouse, it's always going to be biased feedback, right? Your family, your friends, your employees, your co-founders, your spouse, it's always biased feedback. So it's important to find something somewhere like a peer group or something where you get unbiased feedback. Cause I don't, I haven't found anywhere else on earth 
to get that kind of stuff. And when you start presenting things to groups, and I've been doing it for years now, um, what's interesting is you start to see not only your own cycles or patterns, but others, pe- other people's as well. So like you often find that the, the, the issues I'm bringing to the group are sometimes almost the same issue every time in a way, right? Or some iteration of the same issue. And it's just because something deeper hasn't been addressed. And you need people to kind of, you know, talk at you directly and give you direct feedback that you wouldn't get anywhere else. So um, whether that's through a coach or a group or both, I highly recommend it. I don't think you can find it any other way, but it's not usually, um, I should also specify in the group setting, similar to the the one-on-one with the coach, you start with the how to why, there's clarifying questions, um, there's choosing the, the right question, and then there's a lot of um, there's a lot of different tools that go into effect. I won't get in, into in detail, but the long story short is at the end, one thing that they do is you say, okay, how would you advise yourself first, right? Um, so it's interesting to say that, and then they open up to the group. Okay, what are solutions from the group? And then you kind of compare how you think you would do it yourself versus what other people are saying, and then you then you commit to something, and that's the key that we talked about earlier. That agreement, right? You say, okay. I'm going to commit to doing X, Y, or Z by the next meeting, you know, and then they circle up and they follow up and they hold you accountable and they say, did this get done? You know, and, and having that accountability is key as well. So obviously I, I'm a big believer in it. Um, I will say it's like hard to, it's, it's one of those things that's like hard to uh, recommend for lack of a better word. Cause it's just, I know that I, it's, it's a very challenging thing to just take on. And, and I do have a love hate relationship with it, but it's been, definitely better uh, for me to do it than not do it. Absolutely. Yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head. I mean, one, it's accountability, right? It's a call that you have to show up to once a week or once a month, whenever it is. It's having that date on the calendar, like we we're talking about earlier. It's objective data. It's it's getting out of your own head because it's very easy to manipulate your own mind. Uh, it's already doing it for you. It's easy to manipulate sometimes your employees and business partners and uh, significant others because they care about you and you care about them versus just being very clear and concise on the objective data. One thing that I love about doing a podcast is uh, I get to learn. It's like collapsing my time as well. And one of the things that this has helped me tremendously with is communicating better, right? It's, it's how do I know to ask the right questions or where to start the conversation or end the conversation. Uh, but you're, you kind of walk through like a very similar sequence, uh, something I'm going to implement right away. I think the most successful people ask questions and the, the happiest and the by far most successful people above them ask the right questions, right? So it's going through that sequence that you just shared is how do I get my business to do X, Y, Z, right? How do you, how, how did you, or how do I, Trey, grow a kombucha business? Like, what are the three steps? I do want you to share that in a second. But uh, number two, clarifying those questions a little bit more. One thing I love that they have you do, which is I view it as intuition. Well, I think I should do this. Boom, bingo. Nine, 99% of our problems and our questions, we already know the answer. Our gut and brain already know the answer. We just get in our own way. Uh, of not of not solving uh, that question, right? So, how do I learn more about you, Trey? How do I learn about investing into your kombucha business? I want to wrap this up here to be mindful of your time. How do I connect with you? How do I 
give you a layup here to share any final thoughts as we wrap this up. I appreciate that. Um, and, uh, gosh, yeah, I, I mean, we could probably talk all day. I really loved uh, this conversation. It was a lot of fun. So thanks for having me, Tyler. And, um, yeah, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie, LinkedIn as well. Um, and better booch is betterbooch.com. Uh, we do ship nationwide all over the U S we're available target, Walmart, sprouts, whole foods, um, just had our first Costco launch in the Northeast. So we're, we're probably in a retailer near you if you want to check it out. Um, I like to say that better booch, if you, if you try kombucha and hated it, you are not alone. I was the same way. Uh, I, I actually swore off kombucha the first time I tried it for about a year. Um, and then I realized that what I was tasting was sort of like a double, triple IPA when it, in terms of, you know, kombucha versus what better booch does, which is very much like a sessionable pilsners. And so it's, it's actually delicious and easy drinking. Uh, and then we study billionaires. I, I highly encourage you if you want to check out our network, it's the investorspodcast.com. And, uh, and we study billionaires is one of the shows, but we have many others that are really incredible. If you are into investing on your own, I honestly cannot find a better tool. It's a dream tool that we built over there um, called the TIP finance tool. And it has the most incredible intrinsic value calculator in it and some other amazing tools that shows you what billionaires are holding in their portfolios. You know, you can you can do a, all kinds of cool stuff over there. So check that out. Um, and then, yeah, to answer your question about how to build a kombucha company, I don't know if it's any different than any other business, but what I would say, I guess, with any business is to begin with the end in mind because you, and, and to plan for success. These are two things we didn't do when we started. So it was just going to be less, like this little side hustle for us when we started. We didn't have a lot of intention behind it. And, um, and it exceeded all expectations very quickly. And we had to come to terms with, okay, what are we really doing with this thing? Uh, for a long time, that meant trying to grow a lifestyle business for ourselves. And at a certain point it said, actually, no, the mission is now to bring this to as many people as possible. Therefore, we're going to take outside capital. We're going to take on shareholders and investors, and we're going to really try and grow this thing in a bigger way. Those are two very different strategies. And you gotta, and you know, it, it's it's easier if you don't make that halfway down the road. You know, you 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 do it from the start. And there's things we did where we we took every staircase step, which is fine. If you're bootstrapping, I get it. But if you can, if we would have bought bigger tanks earlier on, we would have saved ourselves a lot of trouble. You know, what I mean, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. So you got to plan for success and begin with the end in mind. And and I'll kind of leave you with that, dude. Love it, man. You were you were awesome to talk to. I'm glad that we we're able to finally hop on here, connect. You shared a ton of value. Love the background that you came from this non-traditional background. And now you're doing a bunch of cool things in business and in life and um, you know, have an incredible family, it sounds like as well, and, and great relationships. So it's not easy. And uh, I don't even have kids, man. So shout out to you. Keep crushing it, keep showing up every day. And if you need anything from me, never hesitate to reach out. Happy to help where I can. Thank you, brother. And hit me up when you're in LA. <laughs> <laughs>